You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I'm talking to Greg Turkington, also known as Neil Hamburger. I mean, not really also known as, but I would say that Neil is Greg's uh, most prominent or profile uh, comedy creation. He's a sort of disgusting, hilarious, awful heartbreaking kind of a guy. He's known as America's Funny Man, and you may have seen him with uh, three cocktails grasped in his uh, in his arm against his body, his hair slicked across his head, uh, gigging. Um, and you may have seen him uh, performing at festivals all over the world. I think I first saw him in Edinburgh, it must be 12 years ago or more. Uh, also, he has a show called, uh, a movie called Entertainment, which is an incredible piece of work. We'll talk about that a little bit on the show as well. Um, it, it's uh, it's sort of artistic and painful and beautiful and upsetting, much like Greg and indeed Neil's work. Took me a long time to convince Greg to come on the show, uh, as we'll discuss in this uh, uh, episode. He doesn't really enjoy talking about his art, or uh, and we'll talk about on the Insiders Club. If you get as far as the Insiders Club uh, extra content by signing up at comedianscomedian.com/insiders, we'll get to hear Greg talking about why he doesn't think there's really much worth in being interviewed. So that was a fun thing for your humble interviewer to uh, to grapple with. But he is a really interesting and funny and warm person. And we're going to launch into this interview in just a second. I just want to give a quick shout out to Turtle Canyon Comedy, who have a new show. Uh, basically, Turtle Canyon are the guys that you will know from Sweet Home Ketteringa with James Acaster way back when. Um, Stu Laws is uh, one of the partners of this company and a brilliant comedian and general kind of he's one of those people behind the scenes in all sorts of comedy stuff. Um, I believe he directed Acaster's Netflix specials, but they have a new show coming out uh, created by Yanis Vasiliakis. Uh, it's called Content Content, and it's uh, a comedy set in a web, uh, like a digital content agency, but it's part of, and I absolutely love Stuart for this phrase, it's part of the Turtle Canyon extended universe. So not only are they banging out episodes on YouTube weekly, uh, you can go to youtube.com slash Turtle Canyon Comedy or search the hashtag content web series. That's hashtag all one word content web series. But basically, they've not only got the, because it's a satire of the whole of digital content creation, uh, not only do they have the series going out on YouTube, they also have uh, vlogs, they have a separate reaction shot mini series, they've got uh, a fake podcast that accompanies the show. 
and uh, it just sounds like an incredible undertaking. Sounds very, very funny. Um, Yanis is uh, starring in the show, and the guest stars include people like James Acaster, Joel Domit, Kieran Hodgson, Mark Silcox, Annie McGrath, and lots of other people uh, beloved of this podcast and the British comedy circuit in general. So uh, you can follow them on Twitter or Instagram at TurtleCanyonCom, and the hashtag is Content Web Series. So look out for that. On a very different tone now, I'm very excited and proud to bring you this conversation with Greg Turkington. So do you feel that you've fallen into stand-up? Yeah. Because Neil, Neil Hamburger was initially just a, like a, an identity for you to take the piss out of your friend. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was in bands. I was performing in bands. And I was telling a lot of jokes between the songs. And people would say, oh, you should do stand-up, you know. And uh, as a, when I grew up, I was really into, um, like, Steve Martin and Richard Pryor and some of these guys, you know, Albert Brooks. And, um, but I didn't really aspire to doing stand-up at all. But um, at some point, I kind of got, in in, got the idea in my head of doing some sort of, um, not quite performance art, but stand-up that could be done as a one-off experience with different characters and there was a place in san francisco the holy city zoo um uh, kind of a famous like 80s comedy club that was about the size of a closet you know and um i i don't i mean i wasn't pursuing stand-up but just for fun i would go there on the open mic nights and just go as a different character each week Okay. And do my and they give you four minutes, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I do something, not always so funny, sometimes just obnoxious. But it definitely didn't fit in with what everyone else was doing there. And it, and that was kind of the fun of it, was that the the comics wouldn't talk to me afterwards and, and you know what I mean? Everyone was really standoffish and okay. it just kind of felt like you'd gone in and thrown up on the stage of this place, <laughs> you know. And uh you- I was doing that for fun. I was doing that for fun. Do you uh, think they, I mean, that sounds like an amazing place to be, like to to be turning up to a thing where everyone there finds their thing that they're working on incredibly important and just to not care at all. And almost, it's like, <laughs> a, <laughs> it almost like, um, it reminds me a little bit of, um, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the opening part of Fight Club mm-hmm. where, uh, where whatever his name is, Jack or someone is, is going to, uh, support groups for a disease he doesn't have. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I, I like that comparison. I gotta say, I mean that that place, um, Holy City Zoo. I mean, people like Robin Williams and 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 Bob Cat and all these guys. <clears throat> you would perform there and stuff. Drop in, but what I really got out of that that I think really did influence the Neil Hamburger character, and what I think was one of the funniest if not the, the best stand-up performance I've ever seen, was this guy comes in, signs up, goes up on stage, and he's clearly nervous, and he tells a joke, and it just it gets no response. He, t- he starts to tell another joke, and then he says, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I can't do this. My psychiatrist said that this would be good therapy for me to come up and do stand up, but it's no, this is not working. And he got up and ran out the door. I thought it was the funniest, like it it was the funniest 
thing I ever saw there. You know what I mean? <laughs> he ran, ran out of the place. And he was just so crushed, you know, by how this didn't work. And the idea that this, 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 that his therapist thought this was a good idea is like oh, God. bad therapy. Yeah. Because I think you just set this guy back a long way. You know, he didn't have anyone there for him. The therapist didn't come and he was in over his head. It's not, it's not like skydiving, you know, where, where you can do this and everyone is probably going to be equally skilled at, at stepping off of the wing of a plane, you know, like the, the guy assuming that, that this would work for him, that he, he, yeah. he'd break out of his shell and get a good response and feel good about himself. No, 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 no. Oh, God. This doesn't even work for people that have been, you know, honing their set for years. <laughs> they still can fucking go down the toilet. So anyway, I thought that was really funny. And I think, um, that vibe, <laughs> you know, the fact that I found that so enjoyable, I, I'm like, this is what I want to see on the stage. That kind of stuff is almost like it's the stand-up equivalent of kind of found art, yeah, kind of out, out, outsider art, yeah. Where, but it's, it, and it, I, I mean, it, it is an equivalent, isn't it? Because with outsider art, people make a thing, and then you, it's not being made as an artifact to be to be seen as beautiful in the same way that fine art might be. But, um, but it's important to them. And so I suppose the people that, that enjoy it, that consume outsider art have a certain responsibility today as to kind of where their, where their appreciation goes, like whether they're, you know, like the, the, the pretty crazy people that turn up to open mics. Right. And then the, the comedy community has to sort of go, are they okay? Is it okay to laugh at them? Do they know what it is that, that an audience is laughing at? But, you know, sometimes those people, it's, it's not really okay. Sometimes those people are, are truly damaged, depressing people that, you know, you, if you're laughing, you're laughing at them and it's, 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 just a, it's just a bad scene. But I find sometimes there's people that are uh, damaged who actually are really good showmen or showwomen. You know, that actually with all the problems in their lives, they're really good. And then they're not getting quite the credit that they should because people are just writing it off as like, oh, yeah, these guys are fucked up. They don't even know what they're doing. It's like, no, no, yeah, Yeah. you might be fucked up. But what if what if one out of every 500 totally fucked up uh, street performers was was, uh, you know, the Pavarotti of what he's doing? You know what I mean? And and I spot some spot those people and they stick with me, you know. I collect a lot of um, uh, private pressing records. I mean, I've got hundreds of them. It's probably thousands. <laughs> and and um, that's the same thing is that, you know, a lot of them are just boring. A just private bad. pressing is what exactly? I don't... Well, say in the 60s or 70s, you would have like a, a lot of lounge acts. A lot of bands would play in America, uh, casino lounges or uh, hotel lounges kind of small time local cover bands usually sometimes with some original material and they would press up records as souvenirs to sell at their shows. And then through that same world of being able to press up records, sometimes you'd get, um, outsider artists, you know, lunatics or, uh, rich businessmen who decide that they're, they think that they're wonderful poets and singers or, um, you know, weird, trust fund drug casualties or just all kinds of interesting oddballs that would press up their own record. And these records are really interesting because there's nobody usually filtering what they're putting out. You know, they, 
they bring it in, they press it up. And it's just such a pure vision. And it like most, <laughs> most cases it's super, you know, boring. I mean, they're not all great, but when you find one that's great, it's such a great experience because some of these people are geniuses and they, they're putting their thing out there just completely from their brain and their heart to you without any producer or anybody else modifying it, you know? And so it's just, it's such an experience when you find one of these things that's actually great and, and it, you just feel like you've got this direct pipeline to a great artist that, you know, if you listen to a fantastic uh, Bob Dylan record or Led Zeppelin record or something, it's still been through a lot of steps mm. and this stuff, it's going to be, you know, one out of 500 again that might do this to you. But when it does, it's just, I mean, it's just an adrenaline rush, you know, to find this type of a record. And what, what qualities is it like, what qualities is it that make up that, that one in 500 things? So purity of vision. It, it's, it could just be anything from a really unique vocal sound that's really affecting, that's really emotional. I mean, a lot of the great singers, I think, are great because they have such a personal sound and it, and they, it feels like they're singing directly to you, like a Frank Sinatra, you know. That's what people like about Frank Sinatra is it does feel like he's so invested in the lyrics and he's singing directly to you and he's mm. really he's really tied up in what he's singing about, you know? And so you get something like that from somebody who maybe is a little strange and has and has written their own lyrics which have a strange point of view and they have a great pure voice, you know, that they're singing they're singing these interesting things that you've never heard lyrics like this before either because the structure is off or the turns of phrase are peculiar or who knows what it is. There could be a million different things and they're just singing it directly to you. And it's, and, and sometimes it could be as simple as like slightly inept playing is, is interesting. You know, it, it's not, it's not that you want to hear something that's just a total train wreck, although that could be interesting too. But you know, if, if you were recording a record for a major label and there's something that's off, they're going to fix it. And these people often didn't have time to fix that. And so having a song that sort of goes out of tune or goes out of time or that there's a, a horn that squeaks in it and, and this sort of stuff, it's just uh, it's just kind of interesting when you're listening to it because it's not what you're usually hearing. And in the way that some some catchy, uh, you know, some catchy riff will stick with you, so might some uh, clarinet squeaking where it's not supposed to, you know. Do you feel like when you started doing uh, characters in the in the open mic club in the Holy City Zoo, did you feel that you f you were an outsider? Did you kind of embrace that? Did you inhabit? Was that was that enjoyable? The feeling of being outside of the comedy probably, community. Oh, I was definitely an outsider, but I probably was going in with a bit of uh, a weird mixture of um, in over my head because these people were. A lot of them were professional comedians and then like some sort of snobbery probably that I had. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's got to get like, both at once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I didn't really like that that sort of 80s comedy anyway. So I, I'm sure I went in thinking these people are losers. And then I'm also thinking I'm also really nervous to get up and, yeah, and do, yeah. do my weird shit, which, you know, um, I didn't feel I had any qualification to be up there. I mean, it's hard for anybody really to... Um, 
go up on a stage, especially at that time I was, you know, must have been 21 or something. It was probably right when I turned 21 because that would be the age to go in there. And what other characters were you doing besides Neil? I wasn't doing Neil at all then. Oh, okay. No. Um, I don't know. I mean, they were like, they were all one-offs, you know? So I don't even remember. I didn't document any of it. I mean, I, I think there were a lot of elderly, elderly people, <laughs> you know, kind of senile, sometimes conspiracy theory type people. Sometimes it would be more of a four-minute conspiracy theory rather than uh, than jokes, you know? Um, yeah, st- stuff like, I think, stuff that felt like maybe somebody who had left a nursing home for the afternoon and, and okay. gotten up on stage, you know, or just stuff like that. But I don't remember any specific ones because at the time I really, I really um, had it in my head that you do these things only once. You don't repeat them. So, which is not the best attitude probably. But as a result of it, I don't, if probably if any of this was good, which it probably wasn't, yeah. but if any of it was good, I would have moved on to something else the next week. You know? do, you, do you remember any triumphs? Do you remember like, Hey, this, this one's cooking. There were a couple times that like guys that I thought were, you know, San Francisco hack comics said, Hey, that was, that was pretty good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> but usually, you know, I mean, you might get a couple people laughing. Or, but, uh, you know, I don't think they liked me too much over there. How were you, did your, um, did your kind of like unique combination of superiority and inferiority, <laughs> did that kind of like, how were your, did that manifest in your dealings with the comics? Did they know that you were feeling think, like that? No, I mean, I think, you know, even, even now, I mean, there's comics, are not always the most, uh, socially adjusted people. I don't remember having a lot of conversations with these guys. I mean, you would go into this place and sign up for these open mics and, you know, you might sign up at, I think it was like between eight and nine or something. And then they put the schedule up and you're on at one fifteen. you know? So, you know, for a short amount of time, it's kind of insane because I think the place couldn't have held more than 30 people. Jesus Christ. Know? That's the thing. I didn't do this for that long either. Yeah, I mean, I I did this for a few months and thought it was fun, and then decided, well, that that it's not that fun, you know. Yeah, and that was the last of that. Okay, so it was just a few, how many months did you say? God, it could maybe six months. Okay, of, of you know going in there, and that was that was after you'd been in band, or it was whilst you were in band. Yeah, and yeah. people were saying, hey, you sh- you could be funny. Yeah. So you tried it to discover if you could be, I think or I just... just tried it because it was there and it was it just seemed funny, like you know. Oh wow! I for I can I can have the stage at this place, this this lame <laughs> night for five minutes or whatever. You know, all right, sounds fun. Were you an instrumentalist? Can you? No, I was I was singing in like kind of punk rock type weird bands. Okay, weird slash punk rock bands. And the weirdness was that part of the appeal. Um. Like you, to like who? well, to, well, to, to you, to I don't you, know like these you... bands appealed to many people. Um, <laughs> no, I was probably bringing some of the weirdness, and yeah, I mean, I, I mean, something that's like a, you know, how some of these punk rock uh, bands are about anger and dissatisfaction and fury and all that stuff. I would never go out and do that seriously. You know, if I had those emotions, I would probably try to uh, put it out there through other means than just, you know, 
I, I wouldn't be like a Henry Rollins type of uh, performer. Okay. I mean, that's just me. I, so, like, I like Henry Rollins, but that's not nothing I could do. So, so were you treating the kind of punk band circuit in a little <laughs> way similar to how you were treating the comedy? No, circuit? no. I, I, you know, I just I. I I moved to San Francisco when I was 15 or 16 and it was a very, it was a great time there in the early eighties of, it was just a very creative time. And it seemed like the early, the early days of punk rock, you know, the early years, I mean, anybody with any sort of half-baked idea would just form a band and just kind of put it out there. It was fun. You know, after years of feeling like, music was the domain of, you know, Steely Dan and these guys that were ultra good, you know, the, the punk rock thing kind of made it seem like, wow, I don't, I, I can't do anything, but I got, I have a couple of funny ideas. Yeah. Let's okay. put together a band, you know what okay. I mean? Or like, this would be fun. How about these weird lyrics that I wrote? Yeah, let's do it. Who cares? It just felt like, um, anyone could do this. And, um, the, the people that were involved in it were all kind of misfit, oddball art people. Not like the later thing where it seemed like the you know punk rock was the domain of the jocks from the high schools. I mean, yeah. early on it was like all weird art people that kind of found something interesting. Yeah, that, I mean, again, there's a parallel with comedy there, isn't there? Whereby it's kind of certainly in the UK it was like really weird and alternative, mm -hmm. and now it's much more game plan. It's like this with everything, with yeah. every every artistic movement, you know. Unfortunately. And did you go into all of that? Did you go like that punk scene? Did you have the intention to disrupt? Did you have the intention to affect anything or was it kind of noodling? I think, I think that the, the bands I liked were the ones that caused the most trouble even within the punk scene because, you know, punk as a type of music is pretty shitty, really. It was more the energy and sort of the humor of it and the, the aesthetic and the uh, fairness of it was kind of appealing, you know? Um, so the, the bands I liked like Flipper and Meat Puppets, those, those were bands I liked a lot that were really kind of the thorn in the side of the punk rock movement as early as it was already, these sorts of bands could see like this thing kind of turning into its own regimented form of shit, which is what everyone was trying to get away from in the first place. So they were kind of causing trouble within this thing. So you get these people like, I love this music. It's so rebellious. And then they'd see these bands and they'd be like, well, fuck these bands. They're not fitting in with our movement. Here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Those were the bands I liked that, that caused that trouble. Is, is that why you liked them rather than because you enjoyed the music? No, I enjoyed the music, but the music was, was aggressively obnoxious. You know, like for instance, Flipper was a band where the, the music was all bass driven, not guitar driven. So it's already not exactly like the, the punk rock sound. And the songs were super long. So as punk was getting <laughs> faster and the songs were becoming shorter, mm. Flipper would do 10 minute songs that were, would go at a snail's pace with very like philosophical lyrics. Okay. And so you'd see like an hour long show and they maybe have did, done six or seven songs and they would just beat them into the ground. And it was, um, it was incredible. I mean, it was a great sound. It was very loud. And with the bass being so heavy, it really it felt like your finger was put in a light socket for an hour and you were just uh, riding this weird wave, you know? And that, I mean, all the, almost everything you've said about um, 
that sound and going doing the other thing and recognizing that there's you know this is all going to become its regimented thing all of that clearly has parallels in what you do in comedy yeah i think all that stuff stuck with me that's the funny thing is that um to me they're they're like very obvious influences but they're none of the things that really influence me or anything like the show that i do you know it it really is kind of the philosophy and the the um almost the mood the mood of some of these things you know i'd say yeah. like flipper frank sinatra jr is is a, an act that really stuck with me that that i really really related to on a deep deep level um and, and all these things i don't know people are sometimes surprised because they expect you're gonna just say oh yeah you know uh lenny bruce or what you know sure. and it's like no i mean it's, it's fine but not really the, the thing that got me going so this is greg it's such an exciting thing as a podcaster to meet someone uh, with whom you're kind of intellectually besotted he's just he he his comedy hits such peaks of invention and kind of Bravery isn't the word, but just this unshakable confidence in what he's trying to achieve, the meta game of the the performance, not just making them laugh by a long stretch, but the joke whereby the, the character is a joke itself. The character is the joke. God, that's like David Mavitt's thing about plot is character or character is plot. So listen, if you get the opportunity to enjoy uh, Neil Hamburger live, I really suggest you go for it. It isn't going to be to everyone's taste, but part of the joy is watching people be outraged by it, either on a, on a level of offensiveness or, uh, or finding it offensive or a level simply of not understanding the joke. I do recommend the movie Entertainment as well, which we'll come to shortly. It's not an easy watch, but it contains some really heart-rendingly beautiful uh, and tragic and very, very funny stuff. Any comic will get a lot out of the first 20 minutes of the movie Entertainment. Really, really good stuff. More from Greg shortly. Um, now, there's a couple of things on the slate to tell you about. Uh, one is the Weirdos Christmas Panto. It's called The Weirdos Save Christmas. The Weirdos, as you will remember, are a sort of... What are they? They're kind of the Baker Street Irregulars of comedy. They are, (laughs) this is an industry with a lot of irregulars in it to begin with, but people like John Kearns, Jos Norris, Lucy Pearman, Helen Duff, John Britton, Ben Tarjay, and people of that ilk are on the Weirdos Save Christmas, an alternative pantomime on the 9th and 10th of December at the Bloomsbury Theatre. All proceeds go to the Great Ormond Street Hospital Children's Charity. I think they've raised over 10 grand in the last few years. They sold out Ali Pali Ice Arena for a skating show. They're just completely full of invention and let's be honest, psychosis. So catch up with that. Um, I do have a link to find it, but it's got it's full of numbers and punctuation. So your best bet, I think, is to go to ucl.ac.uk and search for Weirdo Save Christmas. You could probably Google it up. It's at the Bloomsbury. Bloomsbury Weirdo Save Christmas. That will probably do you. And before we get back into the show, uh, I haven't been touring. I've been doing some fantastic gigs recently. So thank you to everyone that's been coming and watching me wear different items of clothing as I prepare for an appearance on American TV show in a month or so. More of that in the post-amble. But one thing I I have enjoyed recently is I was gifted a membership to Next Up Comedy. Now, if you are in the podcast group, you'll know... uh, The the podcast group, aren't we all? If you're in the Facebook group for this podcast, you will know that uh, there was a brilliant thread recently about 
which shows do you wish you had seen at Edinburgh? Which classic, sort of inverted commas, classic shows from Edinburgh's of years gone by are you perpetually frustrated to have missed? And um, because of Next Up Comedy, you can get involved with an incredible amount of those shows. I've been watching uh, Colin Holt's show, Anna Man, a sketch show for depressives. You don't need me to tell you how much I love the work of Colin Holt. He was on this podcast last year, probably two years ago now. God, it all flies past. Um, but his character, Anna Man, this wonderful fading thespian and her late husband, uh, he's not dead yet, but he's on the way. <laughs> he He's just created such a wonderful character. I saw a sketch show for depressives at Edinburgh and uh, I was re-watching it on Next Up and it just struck me that not only is that show brilliant and I would recommend it so wholeheartedly, but the whole project of what they're doing to kind of safeguard... I don't want to... I don't even know... You think of the word archive, but it's not an archive because the stuff is very, very fresh. Um, It's... They're just creating a depository. Is that a positive way to talk about something? Like a... A kind of fort, in the sense of Fort Knox. They're creating a really excellent treasure trove of shows past. And uh, I've really been enjoying the Colin Hall one, so I just wanted to uh, mention that. I'm going to dig into a few more of those uh, uh, over the next few months, which will uh, help me uh, in my continuing mission to not consume any real media on the TV. I don't watch anything anymore. I know it's getting to the stage now where I'll do a gig and someone will mention... Uh, you know, someone will make a reference for the audience to a famous person and I'll just be lost. I remember, I think, Rob Beckett talking to me backstage at somewhere a few years ago, talking about... Oh, no, did he? Was I think I guessed it on his radio show. And Rob was talking about the responsibility to keep up with media when you're a comic and you need to be able to riff on things and understand what your audience understands. And that is a huge flaw in my practice. But someone like Greg Turkington would not consider it so. So let's get back now, without further ado, to Greg Turkington. So when did Neil come about? That came about because I was, um, I had a record label. I was putting out records by my shitty bands because no one else would, you know. And um, I was also... for whatever reason I was really on this prank phone call kick and I would make these prank phone calls every night and had a little gang of jerks like myself that would come over and we'd make these prank phone calls and you know that was our thing for a while and uh, and and tape them or just and tape them well I didn't tape them but one of the people this girl Becky Wilson she uh she asked if she could tape tape them one night I said yeah go ahead and then she passed the tape around San Francisco and then it spread amongst all these touring bands and all these people. And suddenly all these people knew this tape. And uh, so we, she taped another night and the, the tape got around so much that uh, we just said, let's press it up as a record and see what happens. So we pressed this thing up as a record uh, called Great Phone Calls. And um, <laughs> anyway... One of the calls on there was um, a desperate, sad sack comedian calling actually the Holy City Zoo that we were just talking about, um, which at that time, you know, it had been years since I'd set foot in the place. But basically, this sad sack guy is calling the Holy City Zoo and and begging to be booked there. And they keep telling him to uh, send in a tape and he's just running off at the mouth. And, you know, 
and identifying himself at some point in the call as Neil Hamburger. Uh-huh. And the call was, you know, like a one-off call, like all these things. You're just, especially when you're around other people, you're just trying to, everyone's trying to top the last call. Yeah. And so whatever I said on the call, whenever the phrase Neil Hamburger comes out of my mouth, that was the first time I'd thought of it or said it, but it's there for all time. And so that Crank Calls record came out and people liked it. And um, I got some requests to do more Neil Hamburger phone calls for other labels. They, they, They liked that character, you know? And I was like, yeah, that's easy. I'll do that. But um, by this time, I kind of had lost the interest in making prank phone calls. And I thought, these guys want something more from Neil Hamburger. What would be funny is to give these people instead a, a, a live tape of what this guy's stand-up would be like. We only know him from the desperate phone call. Let's do this tape. So I um, did uh, like you know, four-minute live set that was just recorded at home with dubbed in applause and laughter. <laughs> and it was just a complete train wreck, a mess of like non sequiturs and, and partial jokes and weird bad editing so that something cuts off in the middle of a word yeah. and that the applause is coming from different channels. I mean, just, it's just, a, it's almost like a soundscape of yeah, stand-up yeah, okay, comedy. Yeah. And um, that was really fun to do. So, I did a seven-inch single of more of this kind of thing, you know. And which was and, what was that called? The, uh, the looking for laughs. Okay, okay. And uh, and then the, the on the seven-inch single, it's like one side is this, you know, travesty of a of a of a fake live show, and then the other side is an interview with uh, a fake DJ with Neil Hamburger about the making of the record as if this record is so important that there's like an eight minute interview about the yeah. making of the three minute record that was on. So, you know, these to me were like, um, like the comedy records that I liked when I was a kid, which were not the, the comedy records that were recordings of a show, but more like that, like Albert Brooks's, um, uh, albums, um, especially a star is bought just incredible it's like this studio. i'm not familiar with albert brooks it's, i don't, I don't know um, you got to get this record a star is bought by albert okay. brooks greatest comedy album ever and it's it's done in the studio and basically the concept is that he wants to have a hit record and he's so he's going to hedge his bets by doing a track on his album in every conceivable genre that there is so that maybe <laughs> one of these will, will okay. hit you know and um and then along the way, you know, there's sort of narration describing what's going on. And he's got really strange guest stars, you know, people that come on the record for a second or two. Everyone from like Linda Ronstadt to Nikki <laughs> Dolans and all these people. Anyway, it's 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 great. But I, I liked those kind of comedy records, you know, or those Monty Python records, mm, you know. Mm. Um, and so I think with his early Neil Hamburger records, they're just fake live shows with some sort of concept and, and purposely um, shitty packaging that looked like somebody that was not quite well and didn't understand aesthetics very well, you know, okay. purposely printed on crummy paper and, and, you know, a bad mishmash of fonts that don't go together and just a lot of problems, you know, to these records. And so I'd done, I don't know, maybe two or three of those. And, um, then, and I kind of thought I was done with the whole thing, and that was fun, you know. And the other thing was when I would press the records up, because I had this little indie label that was putting out records, but um, I, I didn't see that anyone would buy one of these. 
So because at that time it was really cheap to print records, and at that time I was working full-time at this chemical factory, and I was never into drugs or anything that would eat up my money, just kind of save my money, you know. So it's like, I don't know, maybe four or five hundred bucks to print up, you know, three or four hundred copies of this single, and I would leave them in thrift stores. I would like reverse shoplift them because I just yeah. thought like this is this was this is what I wanted to imagine with somebody finding this record and putting the needle down and being like, "What the fuck is this?" Yes. And there was nothing on the record to clue you in that this was. A, an intelligent person making it as a joke. Yeah, it okay. felt just like outsider art. Yeah, it felt it, like it felt like the stuff some... that inspired me. These sure. kind of records that I would find. The thing is with those with those weird outsider art, private pressing, whatever you want to call them. With those records, the ones that are the best are the ones where you listen to it and you have a hundred questions and they'll never be answered. You can't you can't find this person, and the more you listen to it, the more questions you have. Like, was this intentional? Mm-hmm. Was that, why did they do this? What does this mean? How can this person be? How can they even exist? How can any of this be real? You know. So I was trying to capture that feeling, except it was all calculated and fake. But by leaving it in the <laughs> thrift stores, you know, and but for whatever reason, I'd sold a few of these, and um, just from people that liked the label you know, that would buy stuff that was on my label anyway. And um, so then I get a, a fax from Drag City in Chicago. This was like 1995. And they said, basically, we love these Neil Hamburger singles. Would you like to do an album for us? And I couldn't believe it. Like, <laughs> really? No, I won't. that would be going against the whole point of the project. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it was bad, but it was exciting, you know, because I, I I love records and the idea of like wow I get to make a comedy album like because I couldn't I wouldn't have put out a full album of this stuff that would be expensive and you know yeah but they they wanted me to do it they you know they were going to finance it so I thought wow this is my chance to make a comedy album this is so exciting um and so I scripted this thing out I like put a lot of work into it I really thought this is my one. One and only comedy album. I'm really going to have yeah. some fun with this. I went on the road and recorded it in, in hotel rooms in like the Southwest and um, assembled it all. It was all fake. You went on the road and recorded it in hotel I, rooms. I brought like a four track okay. recorder and, and, and like recorded and mixed it and stuff on the road because I wanted to get that kind of experience of being in Albuquerque. Yeah, you know, and, and but so you re- like, you recorded the material at shows. You no, there show- were no shows. No, there were no shows. That's the <laughs> thing. I'm trying to, okay, you literally recorded it it in a, a real series app. of different hotels. Yeah, rooms. yeah. In the uh, like, I wired the microphone <laughs> to the shower head. Yeah, the, because then you get the sort of that reverb sound, and then I'd go into the bar at the hotel and just record the sound of people talking and yeah. chattering, yeah. and then I mix that stuff on the four <sighs> track. See, so okay. it sounded like. Sounded like I was in that bar, but I wasn't. You, and then, like, I would like actually, if I saw a table at the bar where people were laughing and having a good time, I'd just kind of scoot over there and put my tape recorder <laughs> down when they weren't looking and record their laughs. You know, oh then I have this little God. library of laughs from that hotel to then layer onto the fucking thing. You know, so that it was authentic because I thought, like, I don't know. There's there's just an authenticity that comes from really being at the days in in Modesto, California, 
rather than just saying that, but actually, you know, I'm home, San Francisco. So I was doing that kind of thing with it. And I, and I gave it to Drag City and they put it out and I was so stoked, you know, and then asked for another one. (laughs) (laughs) So at at any point during the the make it, what what was that first album called? America's Funny Man. America's, that was America's Funny Mm -hmm. Man. Okay. So at any point during scuttling around the days in and wherever Mm -hmm. recording on the people, did you ever have the feeling that maybe this isn't an ironic take on outsider art. Maybe this is outsider art by a, like, <laughs> by you know, maybe this is authentic. Maybe I'm losing my mind. <laughs> uh, I don't remember, but maybe. I don't remember. I don't remember thinking I was losing my mind. No, but it's almost <laughs> like, you know, the way people are like, if you're, if you, if you kind of, uh, so conversationally, if you're like ironically racist for long enough, you're actually a racist. Do you I mean, I guess it is outsider art in that I'm not sure I know of anyone else that was doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone else that was making comedy records like this. And I, and I certainly wasn't expecting a huge payoff or a career out of it. You know, it really was. Yeah. I, and you I were was your trying own, to express myself. And no one was producing through the, it. Through they the just, way that I thought I could. Well, they just gave you the money and you went, I'm going to do There's a, there's do a guy, exactly Tra- um, Trace Bruins, who's a guitarist for the band Mr. Bungle and the band Secret oh. Chiefs 3. And, and he was a friend of mine. And those guys were uh, friends of mine that I worked with. And um, so, you know, I kind of like put the stuff together on the road, got all the sounds I wanted, made like a rough assembly of it. But then I went to Trey and his studio and and we like together pieced it together so that it sounded good. Okay. And, and he had a lot of good ideas along the way too. You know, I mean, it's it's always better to collaborate with someone, I think, than do things 100 percent. But in terms of all the recording and gathering of all those sounds, I came in to him with with, you know, 98 percent of it recorded and, and written and plotted out and scripted. And then it was just a question of piecing it together. And sometimes things would accidentally happen that were beyond what we'd ever hoped. Like if you took say you had a five minute block of comedy on the on the uh, on the record right and then i had a five minute block of sounds from the bar and we just do a rough all right let's just put these together and see what happens and you'd play it back and somebody in the bar would laugh at just the right time where they were like i would tell a joke there'd be kind of silence for three seconds and then the person would laugh and it would sound like they were laughing at at the absurdity of what an awful comedian they were watching, you know, like, I don't know. You could just, it just, there were things that seemed very intentional on there that were not, you know, that's so magical. And at this fun. point, Neil Hamburger had never done a gig. No, no, there'd no, never no, been no. a live no show. Way. You, there was you in a hotel room yeah. pretending to talk to an audience yeah. mixed with the noise of uh, hubbub. Yeah. And then, and also sounds that I would record, like I would in the hotel, I'd go to the ice machine and get a bunch of ice and, get the glasses and clink them together and build up like a library. Cause if you use the sound effects records, they sound horrible. It's weird how much it just hiss and room sound that doesn't match. God, I just remembered like, as a kid, like taking it out of the library, a sound effects record, a record of, yeah. uh, of like spooky sound effects and like oh, a yeah. head being cut that off Halloween and all the rest one. of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, those records don't work <laughs> if you're trying to do something. I think for the first thing we did um i used an andrew dice clay record i took some applause from from his record but after a while we were actually like 
I would bring in my friends and, and get them to record. Like I'd get five people and we'd clap and then we'd do another track of that and then layer them and sort okay. of create all the, all the laughter and all the applause and all the clinking and everything, you know, and then get the ambient bar sound as yeah. well. So you could kind of use all these things as tools to put it together. And the material that Neil was doing was uh, improvised, like the phone calls, or was it jokes? No, no, it, it was all it was all written stuff. the The early records, it's stuff. I think the concept is different than what you see now in the mm. show. But I mean, it's been twenty five years, so the, I would the, I would hope something has changed. The furthest <laughs> back I've heard is like Raw Hamburger. That's the second album. That's the second album. Yeah. Fine, because your your the voice is so much younger. Oh uh, yeah, it is. Like your voice is younger, well, that, and the, the, the voice the, you're doing the is the thing is is like that. I was in my twenties trying to sound fifty. Now I'm fifty, <laughs> so I'm and I'm trying to sound older. Yeah. So yeah. it does make sense because if you listen to a George Carlin record from the beginning, he doesn't mm. sound like the same guy mm-hmm. as when you listen to his last record. You know, of course. So it does make sense, but I think it doesn't make sense if somebody buys raw hamburger at one of my shows and then goes home and plays it and is like, what is this? This Yeah. But no, I think those those early records, a lot of the, you know, there's just different things that you're trying to explore when you make records. You, You know, hopefully you have different concepts for each record and hopefully you have different things you're trying to say, trying to communicate and and trying to uh, put out there. And so after you've put them out there, you would hopefully move on to something else, you know. Um, with music, it's really clear that people are doing that. But with the comedy <laughs> records, it seems, it, you know, people actually wonder, like, why is this different than the other one? Where you're like, that's a good thing. That should yeah. be a good thing. So I think on the first couple records, I was interested in the idea of the sound of comedy and how effective that can be, regardless of the content. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've seen this with good comics sometimes is that they just have a charisma and they just have an ability that when they just the rhythm of their mm-hmm. voice, mm-hmm. it's kind of hypnotic and people will laugh even if they can't hear what the person just said. It just sounds funny. You know, I'm forever mentioning this on the podcast, the Andy Daly character. Exactly. Jerry exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's one of, my, that, it's that, one of the best thing things in any category. He was obviously seen. thinking of the same shit that, yeah. that you know. And that's that stuff's incredible, incredible. So yeah, that's that's what this stuff was was just the timing. Except that with Neil Hamburger, the idea was that it's not always working. <laughs> you know, it's somebody that understands these powers but doesn't have them, and so is throwing in applause tracks and stuff like that. And then also, you know, bad engineering, bad recording, all this kind of stuff. Like I was interested in clipped sounds and distortion. And, you know, just things that shouldn't be on a record that are glitches, you know, because glitches to me are funny when you when there's inadvertently a glitch on something. You're like, wait, what What was that? You know, and, and so were you led by the desire to find what was interesting more or less than the desire that it actually be funny, that the jokes? Oh, be yeah. Funny? No, I, I mean, to me, the jokes were not important because the overall thing is a joke. There's. There's so much humor in something like this, the, the fact that it exists, but also just if you find it funny that that somebody is trying sincerely trying to make a funny record, but clips the applause track so that it's clearly dubbed in, you know, and, and you, know, you really want to do that right. So it's not it's too obvious. So it's not like too broad. You know, it's like a lot of subtle errors and mistakes and things that give this oppressive 
kind of hellish quality yes. that can be very funny. You know, that could that can actually to me, very, you know, I mean, I liked when I was a kid, I liked Ed Wood movies. You know, I liked that kind of combination of things falling apart. But, you know, Ed Wood, I think, was a, a good filmmaker in a lot of ways. That's why those things that's why people like to watch them. Is yeah. that he had a lot of good instincts. There's just a lot of problems there, too, because there's a lot of bad stuff that you don't want to ever see. And then there's stuff that's bad. But the more you investigate it, the more you sort of have to give some respect to the people and realize that. They were undercut by the flaws yeah. in their ability, and they're not getting respect for the things that they're good at. So when you're when you're writing the jokes for it, ordinarily when someone's writing jokes, the thing that's at stake is the jeopardy is that this joke might not be funny. When you were creating the album, the jeopardy is if I do this too broadly, mm-hmm. then the thing itself won't be it won't be specific enough to be funny it won't be realistic enough it wouldn't be funny to me then yeah i i would i would do this stuff basically based on i don't i don't think there's enough comedy records that i'm finding funny so i want to try to make one that would be what i would find funny you know what i mean because yeah there's a lot of like wink wink nudge nudge going on and you know something like Saturday Night Live being the most horrible example of this, where they can't just do something funny. They have to do it and then kind of like put their arms out like, see, see what we just did there? You know, and I hate that shit. It just makes me sick. You know, that's why even something like um, Jon Stewart and The Daily Show, I can't stand. I mean, it's over now, but I couldn't stand it because he couldn't just let it lie. He couldn't just put the joke out there. He'd always kind of have to bask in the glow of his own cleverness, you know. And I can't stand it. I don't want to see that. I don't think that's funny. I, I mean, that's just my taste. Sure, sure. <laughs> I just want to see. I just want to see stuff that's a little more subtle. And then I'm laughing so hard, you know, because they they had the restraint to just let yeah. it lie, you know. Yeah. So which is very kind of like Tim and Eric. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Because I know you're a big collaborator mm. with, with uh, mm-hmm. Tim Heidecker. Uh, anyway, I mean that, but you know, I, I get it. It, that stuff's not for everyone. That's that's what I like. So I should probably be making stuff that's what I like, you know. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and that's what I was doing. And then, you know, I think the third third record, this is how far I'm taking this shit. The third record was Left for Dead in Malaysia, and I went to Malaysia and recorded it in Malaysian hotels and the Malaysian bars because the concept of the record is Neil Hamburger gets this booking in Malaysia by mistake or who knows why his agent sent him there and he starts doing the the show and realizes no one can understand what he's saying or he could be wrong because in fact they do speak English pretty well there but maybe they just don't like this act and that's why there's no response whatever the case yeah the whatever I'm saying on stage is getting no response and so I start drinking more and basically dispense with all the material and then it just becomes this sad, self-pitying monologue told um, without believing that anyone even understands what I'm saying anyway. So I could just be talking to myself, just listening to somebody disintegrate on stage, <laughs> talking to themselves with no material and assuming no one's hearing it. And so anyway, to, when, when I wrote that album, I, I thought the only way to make this really real is to go to this place and do this, you know. And that's what I did. That so. that amount of commitment to the idea 
it really permeates everything you do, right? You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, for I better or for worse. Yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. I mean, yeah, I think I, don't, I will never know what that record would have been like had I not gone to Malaysia. But, but to me, it's funnier that I did. And also the sounds, like a sound of a bar. It's, it's in Malaysian Malaysia, hubbub. It doesn't sound the same. Yeah. It sounds so different. And I think if I'd gone to my usual bars in, in San Francisco and recorded, it would have sucked. It would have been very phony, you know? Let's talk about uh, disintegration. Okay. Disintegration seems to be like a, like a big part of it. Like if I think, if I think of uh, entertainment mm-hmm. and the end of entertainment, how, how kind of it's this sort of stasis Sorry, when I say the end, the end of entertainment, I'm referring to the end of the movie that's called Entertainment, which you <laughs> which ca- kind of is the end of entertainment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I realise we're jumping forward in in time there, but just the the beginning of that movie, which I found uh, powerful and horrifying. Someone I was talking about it with some friends, and someone said, um, uh, "Yeah, I've seen that movie. Don't see it. Don't watch it when you're depressed because you'll kill yourself." <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I, part of me, I came away feeling like people should, we should show this movie to new comics to uh-huh. go, are you sure? Are you sure? You know, <laughs> the funny thing is, and this is like the ultimate feather in my cap. And I mean, I, if I think about this, I got to pinch myself because it's so exciting was that um, when Steve Martin did this comedy masterclass that they were selling. Yeah. He, yeah in I'm... the first lesson, I think he recommends the movie for new comics that want to sort of get a, an idea about some of the isolation that could be involved oh in this God. career, which is like, whoa. Yeah. Steve, just that Steve Martin even watched the thing. But, yeah. But that he uh, recommended it. It's blown my mind. The, in the first 20 minutes, uh, Neil goes through, uh, because the, the character Neil is like, a, it's an interesting take on Neil because Neil is Neil. And, but when you're outside of the makeup and when you're outside of the hair, yeah. you're also Neil. Which so, was, yeah. It was a hard thing to get my head around. Yeah. I, well, yeah. I've, got lo- I've got loads of questions about that. I mean, just like the fact of having a, a camera watch you get into character for the first time, that must have been incredibly weird. I was not into it, but, um, you know, fu- strange when Rick and I and Tim, we um, went on a little road trip to shoot some test footage to try to get investors and just to try to see what this could be like. We actually went to the Modesto Days Inn. I recommended this could be a good place because this is where I recorded the first couple of Neil Hamburger yeah. records. And we shot a bunch of stuff there that, you know, didn't wasn't for the movie. It was like pre-movie yeah. um, test stuff. But I think that that movie has a lot more to do with those the early Neil Hamburger period in a way. It's kind of more that, that version of Neil. And when we did the movie um, and we did that test footage, I... I was really struggling with taking off the glasses with not using that voice, the Neil voice in any scenes where I wasn't on stage because over the last 20 years, I had been so protective of the character never to be seen basically when he wasn't performing. Cause I thought like, this is most, most effective if you have to, if everything's implied, everything's implied about what this guy's life is like. And we don't actually show that. You have to think about it and sort of fill in the blanks yourself. I thought that was going to be more interesting. And um, so I was just clinging to all this stuff. And I'm, I'm going around with the glasses. And Rick is like, you can't 
wear those glasses all the time. It's not, it's not believable, you know, like, cause he's, a, he's unreal. Isn't yeah. He? Yeah. It's like, it doesn't, he's like, the movie is just going to be shit. You know, it's not, it doesn't work if you're talking in that voice all the time. And I'm like, I know, but this is like, yeah, it was, it was like a real conflict. I knew he was right, but I was so used to protecting it. So the, the breakthrough was when I think he suggested, well, what if, because he's like, you obviously, because it's been my character for so many years, he's like, you obviously have a lot of control over it that, that you're, you're reluctant to give up. What if we don't call the character Neil Hamburger? And I said, yeah, because then I'm free to do whatever we want to make the movie as good as it can be. And then it became clear, like, why should I cling to something that happened on a record from 1997 that a few hundred people have heard when we're making a feature film that is like such an incredible opportunity? This is something that's truly immortal is making a movie. And I, and I would realize like, what a jerk I'm being that I'm like nitpicking saying, well, no, we don't ever see Neil without, we don't see this. We don't see that. So I think that was kind of just the step I needed was like, all right, I won't call it Neil. And then I was like, I'll do whatever you want. Let's write the best movie we can. And then it it like kind of opened it up. That must've been the first time anyone had expressed any creative opinions about Neil. (laughs) (laughs) Do you mean besides you? That I was willing to. That you were willing to. Yeah, it's true. And, And you know, I have just so much respect for Rick and so much trust and, Everything he said made perfect sense. I was just used to fighting it, you know, when people would ask, oh, you know, let's do this photo shoot. How about we get a photo of you getting the costume on? I'm like, no, no, no. You're not getting that. Are you crazy? You know, it was all this kind of, and I wouldn't even do interviews out of character, you know. I mean, I was so protective of all this stuff. So, um, but once, you know, once I let that go, I realized, like, we can really tell this great story with, with no restrictions suddenly, I, I, you know, it was really, it was really easy to fill in that backstory, the and fill first, in those details. You the know. first twenty minutes of this movie, which which detail uh, uh, the comedian and uh, is he called Neil in the end? Did you come? I, I, did you somebody, back I think, that? I think John Riley calls me Neil in one That's, scene, and okay, we, we sure, left it in. I sure. mean, it's fine. Okay, it's fine. So. Uh, this the comedian who looks like Neil Hamburger <laughs> and, and has the same jokes <laughs> is um, uh, is on tour in the desert, like in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. um, and with an opening act who is young and attractive and a clown. <laughs> and the the first twenty minutes or thirty minutes are like I was watching it as a comic relating so hard to the bit when he's watching the opening act storm it in the prison the bit when jesus the bit when you said um uh when you said did this did this used to be a days in i was like oh my (laughs) god the psychogeography of being a comic where you've been to a place and it used to be another place and you pointed out and no one gives a fuck and why should they (laughs) all of that it's like the most searing observations about a life on the road going on that pointless day trip to see some oil fields i was crying you know what i mean like it was and and then so all of that stuff and i was like i know what this thing is and then the movie as Neil disintegrates and the movie disintegrates and I went, I don't know where I am anymore. And it became so much kind of richer, like, you know, like an hour and a half of really funny observations about life on the road that were painful. That would have been great. I'd watch that movie too, but it became something so much richer than that. Yeah. It turns into a horror movie. I mean, it's yeah. 
Um, yeah, that scene in the prison that you're talking about where where I'm watching the Ty Sheridan character and I'm just like slumped up against the wall just watching it. I, to me, that's almost like the key scene in the movie. <laughs> just, just the bitterness and disdain and just like existential despair that that I'm obviously feeling watching this thing where you you know where obviously I don't think this is good enough. Obviously, I'm resenting that this is what people want. You know, it's just like, all right, this this the whole world is terrible because people like this. Yes, you know, yes. which you you experience all the time anyway when you're you know at a concert or watching some dumb movie or anything, you know, this is popular. Like, All right. This is, this is what I'm living amongst. This is what people that they're, they're roaring for this. They're plotting for this. Help me help, you know, get me out of here. The, bit, and the fact that we were able to capture that in that, yeah. in that one little clip, I, I'm so happy. And the nearer the end of the movie before I don't want to spoil what happens at the end of the movie if that's possible to do that we're not only talking in those terms but nearer the end of the movie when Neil is having his eyes tested Mm -hmm. and there is just that long shot he's been left alone in the room and he's just looking at us He's looking, I felt so seen by this guy. Look, it was almost like the character had put on the special eye machine and then stared directly down the barrel and this allows him to see me and you're just sat there going, hello, hello, fucking hell. I mean, yeah. I, I was so kind of like, I was watching that going, oh, I'm thanks a lot. I'll have to remember this forever now. <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's Rick Alverson stuff that, you know, he he comes up with something like that and I'm like, okay, we'll, we'll do that. Yeah. And I, I, it's when I see it on the screen, that's when I understood that too. You know, Jesus. he said, Oh, I booked this time at this optometrist. We're going to film this scene. Of okay. You. You're just kind of sitting there with a glum outlook. And, uh, and then, you know, he pieces it t- together yeah. and it's like, Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to the, uh, the, the kind of the Genesis through the albums, you still, by the point of raw Hamburger, you still hadn't been on stage as Neil. Right. So how did you get, how, when, get, when did you first go on stage? I, I got offers, you know, but I just didn't want to do it. Because thought, the albums were selling. I mean, you know, they're selling a thousand copies or something. Sure. You know, they're being which passed, is great. They're, which they're is being great. passed around. I'm not knocking it. No, but, sure. But I mean, it's not like, uh, oh my God, I'm turning down million dollar <laughs> sure. opportunities. But it's cult. It's being passed. Yeah, it's, they, it exists. People, and like people it. are going, have people you like fucking it. heard this? Yeah, and handing it to their friends. It's like a, it's a big thing with bands, you know listening to it in their tour buses and tour vans and stuff. Um, yeah, I would get show opportunities and I just said no because I thought I was too young to, to do the character. And I thought the records are all so controlled, you know, like mm. I, I'm the audience is me. I've, I've choreographed every audience sound and at least 50 percent of what was funny about the records was the audience reactions and the way they were placed the way that I would move a laugh or a cough or whatever the reaction is to just the right moment. Mm. You know, you move it one half a second this way and suddenly it's really funny where it is. You move it this way and it's not, you know? Okay. And that was to me like what the records were about really and not about jokes. So I just thought, what's the point of doing a show? I'm just going to be telling some jokes. It's not, it's not going to be what people like about the records. And, um, then th- these these guys in Australia, this band Frenzel Rom, they their manager uh, Chris Moses got in touch with me, 
and said, yeah, these guys are pretty popular down here and they're doing this big tour and they want you to open and um, playing big festivals and just giant venues. And I said, no, I can't I don't do the show. I don't do the shows. I can't do it. But then they started offering plane tickets and money and like decent money and stuff. And at the time, my, my girlfriend, now my wife, I mean, she she's Australian. We needed to go back and forth between America and Australia, you know, at least once a year. And um, I think at the time she was still in Australia and I was in America. I can't remember, but whatever. I needed a flight to Australia and these guys were offering it, you know. And so it just seemed like, all right, I, I guess I can do this because I'll get my ticket to Australia and I'll get paid. They're offering good money. And um, it could be interesting, right? And I also thought, if it doesn't really work, like I think it probably won't. I'm already in the cares? country. <laughs> well, and, and, like no one will know. Yeah, you sure, know, it's kind sure. of like so remote. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't really interfere with what I was doing with a thing in America. I just thought it would kind of disappear that I'd even done this, you know. Um, so it was worth a try, you know. And so I, I kind of like wrote the the stage version of it and went out there and did these shows and um a lot of they were like a frenzel rom they were very popular with young kids young punk kids you know and these young kids the second i come out in the tuxedo they start throwing shit and spitting and i mean it was a bad response it was really bad you know and and i kind of got into fighting back with them verbally but Based on that tour, there'd probably be no reason to ever do it again, you know, because like, it was it was brutal. I mean, it was a lot of shit thrown, a lot of bottles okay. and, you know, all kinds like of coins stuff at that, your eyes and shit like that. Everything yeah. you could think of, you know, and um, did but you... at the same time, like we played, we did shows at big, big venues. I think one of the one of the first shows I did, there were like 10,000 people in the audience, you know, so it was kind of it was kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting. Um, I. In the end, I had a good time, and I thought it was it was it was an interesting experience. And then I stayed in Australia, and I started getting from those some local offers from clubs and things to do shows. And so I kind of put together more of an act, and I did probably did the first fifty shows I did in Australia, and it was good because I worked the bugs out, and I realized like this isn't going to be like the records, but it could be something else that might have some value. We'll see. But I, I realized it could be a completely different thing and it could work because, you know, to use the band comparison again, there's bands that are studio bands, really. Yeah. And they have a live version, like, say, the Beach Boys. You know sure. what I mean? It's like these records are about what Brian Wilson is doing in the studio. But they've got a live version that goes out and it, it could be enjoyable. Right. So I put together the live version of this. What, when you're on stage in front of 10,000 people and they're shouting and throwing stuff and it's some of the first gigs of your life in the, as that character, yeah. it's the, some of the, the life of that character. Mm -hmm. What is there to enjoy from that? I'm not suggesting there's nothing, but yeah. what are the things that you enjoy? Well, I think that, that when you can make it work despite the fact that that stuff's going on, it, 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 it kind of feels good, you know? You're like, wow, I got out of there. And in the end, there were a lot of people that really liked that, you know. And the people that didn't like it were adding to the experience for those who did, you know. <laughs> that that was a really it's big a thing early on was like, 
half the show is going to be the people not liking it. So for the people in the audience, they're watching that. And so it becomes this extra dimension of entertainment. That that was interesting. That I thought that was interesting. And then also um, it was it was interesting to write. I, I mean, you wouldn't call them real jokes because I'm not sure any other act could do some of these jokes. But it was interesting to write for Neil Hamburger as a real entity. I was mm. I was enjoying just the experience of of doing something else with it. And I, I realized like that I'd been kicking and screaming to not do this for years and that it was actually kind of fun and it and a just a different opportunity that that I could get something out of, you know. And and what is it when the people that were liking it they're liking the, the, the fact that some people don't like it. I've been in crowds like that. I've watched kind of anti-comedy stuff where I've been aware that some people hate it and that's made me feel a bit more special because I feel like I'm in on the joke, you know. Sure. Um, and, and what else is it that they're liking? Like, what to you is the funniest element of Neil? Well, I don't know about that. But, I, I mean, to me, it's, like, changed so much over the years and it's always been what interests me at the moment or what I'm finding funny at the moment, I'm probably going to incorporate into the show at that time, you know, and not rely too much on um, stuff that maybe worked 10 years ago and keep it forever. I'm happy with it kind of changing based on what interests me at the time. I don't know why, you know, I think different people get different things out of it. I like that about it, that people will come up and tell me what they liked. And sometimes it's a hundred percent, different than what the previous person said sometimes it's stuff that's completely in their head i've had people compliment me on um mistakes that were in fact mistakes that they thought was it was a brilliant fake mistake okay. you know and i've had people repeat something to me that i said on stage that i know i'd never said mm-hmm. and they said that was so funny they heard this thing that i didn't say and they thought it was funny so there's like that's interesting. People reading something into it that you didn't intend. And then, you know, sometimes the people just specifically, there'll they'll be moments during the show nowadays too, where there's some turn of phrase, there's some tiny moment. It might be in the setup to a joke. It might be in the punchline. It might be in between the jokes, but there's something that I personally find very funny. That's usually not the, the thing that's getting the laughs. And sometimes somebody points that thing out and I'm like, that's my favorite five seconds of the night. Okay. And so I love, I love when somebody else here and it, it often is, it, it, it's often some archaic turn of phrase or just some, something being wrong. Like I like to have misinformation in a premise to something, but I'm totally <laughs> committed to it. And then, or, or jokes that don't logically, the structure doesn't logically mm. work where when you think about it, you're like, wait a minute, what, what was this? Um, how do you feel? Do you feel part of the thing now? Do you hang out to, with the it comics backstage? It just depends backstage on who or? it is. I mean, there's. I have a lot of comics who are some of my best friends in the world who, who I just think are incredibly great, great performers, and I'm, I'm blown away by them. And then there's people that are just such frauds and such shitty people. Like, shitty people as people and shitty comics and super popular, and people don't see through what what garbage they are you know and, and a lot of times it's like the people that put themselves out there specifically presenting themselves as wonderful people and you know like wow 
it's crazy that they would dare put themselves out there as wonderful people when these are like some of the shittiest people that you'll ever yeah, meet. I do. You I know? feel like it's, I it's, hear that a lot. People are always saying it's always the people who are like, I'm Mr. Friendly Guy. Mm-hmm. It's true, though. It's true. I mean, when I started doing this, I didn't know a lot of comics. And when I when I um, and I, you know, I mainly play music venues and always have um, when I started getting opportunities to to work on comedy bills and work with comics and stuff. I was um, I was shocked at, at how much I liked some of these people that I would not have thought I would like. And some of some like super famous people that I've gotten to know that are just the greatest people. And that, and you really like extra respect somebody who has achieved this fame and is actually like a super caring, wonderful, great person on every level and committed to art and committed to all the things that you would, would hope for, you know, despite being rich. <laughs> um, and then, you know, there's just other people that, you just can't even fathom you know, how awful they are. So, I mean, it's probably like anything, probably just like the, the mix of people at the office, you know, if, if you have a regular job or whatever, it's just always going to be, you know, the mix of um, good and bad, like any trip in the subway. But um, I do like a lot of comics, if that's what you're getting at. I don't know quite what I was getting at. Uh, I'm just I interested that plenty of them. I th- I just think that the the outsider nature nature of what you do, and it seems like throughout you've been, but you just you've just not kind of done any of the rules of being a comedian. You know, like, like they haven't even occurred to you in a way that's really inspiring. So many of us start doing comedy and then start. Uh, feeling like, oh, I should do it this way, or I should do it that way, because we all are. We've made that initial leap, and then we we forget that that we forget the the heroism or the courage involved in putting yourself out there, and we go immediately revert back into doing the same thing as everyone else. And you just seem to always have existed outside of that. I know it's it is strange, but I mean, I think there's a lot of bad information that's given to people that are trying to do do this, and and I think it's it's destructive information. You know, one thing that I heard was like on on some show is somebody giving the advice to a young comic of it's more important to be likable than to be funny. And I'm like, this is wrong. That is no, which it's being funny is what you're supposed to be doing here. Yeah. Not being a likable guy, you know, but then there's people that use comedy. And this is the problem with a lot of the comics in L.A. is there's a lot of people that use comedy strictly as a stepping stone for movie or television fame. And so I'm not on the same page as those people. I don't want to be on a sitcom, you know? So you end up sharing a stage with somebody like that. And some of them are okay. Some of them are not though. Some of them are just awful careerist actors masquerading as cool comedians and bullshitting and brown nosing their way to sitcom fame. And then they'll never mention stand up again, you know? And it's, it's weird because they'll, be rubbing shoulders with people that are really committed to stand up as a, as an art form. And these people will be pretending that they are. Do you feel they just just want to be on a fucking sitcom? Are you one of the people that's committed to stand up as an art form having started off so separate to it? Like you Um, feel like uh, that seems like committed to art, art as anything, any sort of art as an art form. You know, I think stand up definitely can be a great, great art form, but you know, you just got to, like you were just saying, 
you just got to like not fall for some of these weird rules. You know, you got these, these courses, you know, like the UCB in LA does these, these courses and it's just like, you can't go take a course on how to do this and expect to be a valid comedian. I mean, you have to have like a point of view, you know, I don't think they teach that. It's it, it's it's the, 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 all that fake improv stuff, you know, where it's like a game, like there's rules to this improv and it's not really it's not really an improvised anything. Yeah. Us talking now is is improv because you know? <laughs> I don't you don't have a script. I don't have a script. Yeah. But these people, they, they turn this this concept into this weird, unfunny nightmare, you know, of of. If, I, I don't even know what it is, but I watch that stuff and I can't even, I feel like they could be speaking in Swahili because I don't even, everyone's laughing and I'm not finding anything funny about what's going on. And they, it, it seems like a cult. It seems like some sort of Amway Scientology sort of <laughs> cult of, of mutual backslapping, you know, <laughs> like as long as you laugh at the person to your right yeah, and then they laugh at the person to your left and they laugh, then everyone's laughing at each other. So Everyone's laughing on stage all the time. And then so the audience, it's contagious. And then they're laughing. But you guys are just talking gibberish, just like actual gibberish and doing these funny dances and this shit that just is just nothing that I find funny. You know, it's all just it's all just telegraphing. This is funny and crazy and insane, you know, and you're just sitting there saying, what is this? What what is what has happened? So anyway, I don't get along with those people. That's all I'm saying. So that was Greg Turkington. We continue this conversation with over 30 minutes of extra material, uh, which you can access if you are a member of the Insiders Club on the private podcast. If you're not yet a member, go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to sign up. Uh, and support the show and receive all the goodies there. Uh, There's also on the private pod, we've released a You Interview Stew with some incredible information on marketing for musicians and how it relates to marketing for comedians uh, from a man called Sheldon and his excellent band, the Lancashire Hot Pots, who are selling out big rooms with no profile whatsoever. So certainly worth listening to. If you're in the Insiders Club, I highly recommend you get stuck into that one. And the extra content today from this episode with Greg includes him talking about how he was booed onto the stage supporting Tenacious D at Reading Festival, famous story in comedy circles, and how that experience meant no more to him than being at Madison Square Gardens and hearing a crowd chant his name. We're also going to learn about those figures in uh, the public eye who he won't attack and why, and as I mentioned earlier on, uh, why he considers interviews pretty much pointless. So it's <laughs> lots more great stuff from Greg at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. I'm going to post Amble at you uh, if you'd care to hang around after the break. But other than that, remember, it's been a whole raft of stuff in the blurbs today. Do check out the Weirdo Safe Christmas at the Bloomsbury Theatre. Have a look out for the hashtag content web series on YouTube or go to youtube.com slash turtlecanyoncomedy. And spend the next week looking forward uh, with excitement to an interview with Tim Renko. Uh, Tim Renko is is my guest on next week's episode. And uh, regular listeners will remember that that means the episode is already safely in the can, backed up and uploaded. Uh, Really, really funny and very painful interview with Tim. Uh, Some very serious subjects in that one and also a lot of glee. So that concludes the podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll be with you next week and I will post Amble at you if you care to hang around 
after this noise. Bye for now. So here we go. This is a little post amble about a thing. I can't now listen. If you've been on the mailing list for a while, you'll remember I sent out that thing, that little tape. I mean, God, must be two years ago now of me downstairs at the Monkey Barrel trying to do, uh, trying to sort of record a set, and uh, it all went horribly wrong. Largely due to, well, sort of me really, but <laughs> it went entertainingly wrong. I'll dig it out, and I might, uh, I might re-upload it. I'll put it on the Facebook group. Um, but I am very happy to report, if I haven't already reported, that I am going to the states. I've got my visa. I can't wait. And I, I've only done what have I done on stand up on TV? I've done a couple of episodes of uh, Montreal Just for Last, one of which was very gratifying to see me. I kind of googled my own name within Spotify. If that's I Spotified my own name, that doesn't really work. And um, and it turns out one of my routines is up there as one of those best of comedy JFL things, which you know I definitely remember watching on TV as a kid. So that's enormously satisfying. Um, I've done bits and bobs in the UK, but I this is the point of the post but It's not merely some uh, crowing. It's that. I God, the thing that stresses me out most often, I alluded to this uh, when I was talking to Ellie Taylor, you remember that episode some months back? Um, the most stressful thing is not knowing what to wear. In the words of Bobcat Goldthwaite, when I'm normally gig, I look like fuck pie, right? Old crap trainers, jeans and a t-shirt because I want to, for me, comedy's a sensual thing. I want to bounce around. I want to feel my contact with the floor. I want to be able to... Do you know what I mean? I, I want my comedy to... I don't know if I want this, but I feel like my comedy happens at the same time as me running for a bus. Do you know what I mean? It's about use. And I've just never, ever dressed up. And all of my attempts to dress in something worthwhile... Uh, not worthwhile, do you know what I mean? But something that kind of is a bit less boring and bland and middle-class white guy than jeans and a T-shirt... I'm not saying they amount to naught. The most recent thing I did it, it just for last early this year, I've not even seen it yet, but I'm very excited about the look of it. I, I, I took some advice and I think wore some pretty great stuff. And, um, and now I have taken some advice from a man uh, called Chris, a friend of mine uh, through a, a TV show that we work on. And um, he is very, he's one of those elegant guys. He's one of those guys that looks, I didn't even know this was a thing. He hooked me up with some YouTube links to people, men, telling other men how to dress properly. So suddenly there's like, oh, yeah, you're right, that does look good. I can see a guy swapping a thing out and going, oh, that looks... God, where was all this when I was terrified and alone? So I've bought this nice jacket. I've spent the weekend on stage wearing my nice jacket, hoping that I don't look like, as Ben Norris cruelly said to me backstage, uh, that... You know, if uh, if I'm staying, I should take my coat off. I don't think it looks too outdoorsy a coat. I'm excited about it. I think, like, I put it on and went, yeah, that's the thing. And then panicked and had uh, further collie wobbles about it. The point is, as you can probably hear, I'm getting myself worked up about it. And I bumped into lovely Faye Treacy, very funny uh, comedian and musician, um, who uh, I, I saw at a gig in uh, Brixton a few nights ago. And... I was properly like, I've re- she just called me on something that I want to admit. This is a very long way of, uh, of building up to the fact that Faye Tracy called me on something totally accurately, totally correctly, that I didn't really want to admit. The whole point of this podcast, in many ways to me, one of the core beliefs, the core elements of this podcast, is to remind you that whatever you do, whether it's comedy or not, 
to remind you that you are good enough, that you don't need to worry about all the shit that your respective industry puts in your head. Actually, the whole point of everything is real people and real connections and that we're all struggling and we're all getting by, right? I've never said that before. I've never made it a mission statement, but that's what it means to me now. Those, the most meaningful to me of the emails I get and the contact I get from you are the elements which sort of resonate, which chime with that, which go, this reminded me that we all feel like that and I felt a bit more whole, a bit more connected. That's the important stuff. And I believe that in my heart about comedy, but in the same way that I'm much better, we are all much better at giving advice than we are at applying it in our own lives, I realised I had just completely slipped back into that thing of like, what's my opening line going to be? Is that going to be right? I've got to finesse this. What about if I say that first? What if I've said that before that? That bit definitely works better when it's had a big build-up, and that line is almost always better when I've, you know, warmed up for 20 minutes and done this. Suddenly I'm working on a five-minute set. And um, it, I basically got completely in my own head, had a pretty, I mean, it wasn't a terrible gig, but I was sort of opening, I've spent the weekend, the last five gigs I've done, I've opened with that five minute set to kind of sharpen it up, ready for the recording. And, um, and thank God I ran into Faye, who she said, how was that? And I said, yeah, well, you know, it got there, but that first bit, that's the whole problematic bit. You know, you can't be training up the bit for telly and then um, and then finding out that that bit is itself lumpy so she basically just she metaphorically laid a cool hand on my forehead and told me to shut the fuck up and I'm really appreciative so thank you Faye um, you have reminded me at exactly the right time that what I need to do is just sort of shut the fuck up and go and do it go and do the gig play what did Alan Cochran say to me 15 years ago play the room not the occasion and for the rest of the weekend, having had that chat with Faye, I played the room, not the occasion, and had loads and loads and loads of fun. So it's all going to be all right. Take a breath. I'm going to actually take a breath. <laughs> Even talking about it, I've been getting worked up. I can feel it in my chest. It's what my therapist referred to as your... <laughs> and that makes it sound like he invented this concept, but the parasympathetic nerve system, nervous system, right? You get all fight or flight and breathy and that exacerbates it all listen to my voice jesus <sighs> didn't that sound like a really terrible relaxation tape me stressing out about something and going listen to my voice jesus basically it's all going to be fine i can't wait to do it i'm so excited about doing it but i'm about to walk on at the gig i'm going to do tonight uh, i'm about to walk on uh, in the costume in the jacket and there's other clothes as well don't panic and, uh, and just make sure it works in as many contexts as I can. You see, I can't help, I can't not over-plan and over-prepare, and yet I know in my heart that, like, the, do, you know, do you know what? Maybe let's do a show like this. You know Harry Hill's doing his sort of club night, and loads of brilliant, brilliant acts are in that, um, and I think he's given quite a lot of people their first bit of TV, which is such a brilliant thing to do. But... Um, if we were to hypothetically create another outlet for club sets on TV, um, wouldn't it be good if the whole premise was that you okay people in advance and you just said, Don't, just forget it, sometime in the next 18 months we're just going to spring it on you. How, that is my dream gig where if right now as I'm recording this at 6pm someone just walked in to wherever I am and when, oh, you've got to go and do a TV set right now. You go through a portal, you're in the room, and you're on in five, four, and I just walk on and do a fucking great gig. 
because there wouldn't be time to fuck myself over. Goodbye for now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.